All right, let's try it again. This is the shout field. And you, my friends, are listening to the Wish Out Cast. Again. So I went out back on the back porch and I, I started recording and I complained that the neighbors were uh, running their sprinklers at 12 something a.m. And so I, I just started walking around back there hoping that they would turn off but reminiscing about the other times I had recorded in the backyard. I, I had done Dracula's Guest there and I had done one of the uh, Sidekicks Journey episodes there, the one with the crickets. Then I got to the point. Today I would be presenting a short story by Stephen King, and uh, I started to talk a little bit about uh, my history with uh, recording Stephen King stories. Then I, I stepped in the light, and I realized that the battery had died. And I'm glad that I noticed it like three minutes in instead of 30 minutes in. But still, at that point... I was cold. I came back into the house and did the rest of the episode indoors. And I was just about to go to sleep, just about, when I thought, well, maybe I should check and see how big that file was. And it was it was tiny. It was me saying, hi there, this is Rish Out. And that was it. So I'm glad I realized that because I'm going to try and edit this episode promptly and uh, eventually... I would have discovered that the beginning was gone. And so now it's not. But now this is practically a podcast that dares not speak its name because I'm indoors. I was going to be outside. Doesn't matter. I mean, there was a lot of noise outside. And, and, and right now there's quiet. And I'm not going to bury the lead. I'm going to do another Stephen King short story in this episode. And then I will explain to you why I'm doing that. Or should I explain right now? Half and half. I'll give you a very short explanation now, and I'll give you a lengthy one afterward. So I did a few readings of Stephen King's short stories, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I have done these over the years, long before I was ever a podcaster, and I put them on YouTube, and those are no longer available. The, uh, I want to say the King Estate put the kibosh on that, but I think you say it's the king estate if the man is dead. And he ain't. I will say more after the story, but please enjoy The Reaper's Image by Stephen King. Yay! The Reaper's Image by Stephen King Narrated by Rish Outfield we moved it last year, and quite an operation it was, too, Mr. Carlin said as they mounted the stairs. Had to move it by hand, of course. No other way. We insured it against accident with Lloyd's before we even took it out of the case in the drawing-room, only firm that would insure it for the sum we had in mind. Spangler said nothing. The man was a fool. Johnson Spangler had learned a long time ago— 
that the only way to talk to a fool was to ignore him. Insured it for a quarter of a million dollars, Mr. Carlin resumed when they reached the second-floor landing. His mouth quirked in a half-bitter, half-humorous line. And a pretty penny it cost, too. He was a little man, not quite fat, with rimless glasses and a tanned, bald head that shone like a varnished volleyball. A suit of armor, guarding the mahogany shadows of the second-floor corridor, stared at them impassively. It was a long corridor, and Spangler eyed the walls and hangings with a cool professional eye. Samuel Claggart had bought in copious quantities, but he had not bought well. Like so many of the self-made industry emperors of the late 1800s, he had been little more than a pawn-shop rooter masquerading in collector's clothing, a connoisseur of canvas monstrosities, trashy novels and poetry collections in expensive cowhide bindings, and atrocious pieces of sculpture, all of which he considered art. Up here, the walls were hung. Festooned was perhaps a better word, with imitation Moroccan drapes, numberless, and no doubt anonymous, Madonnas holding numberless haloed babies while numberless angels flitted hither and thither in the background, grotesque scrolled candelabra, and one monstrous and obscenely ornate chandelier surmounted by a salaciously grinning nymphette. Of course, the old pirate had come up with a few interesting items. The law of averages demanded it. And if the Samuel Claggart Memorial Private Museum... Guided tours on the hour, admission one dollar adults, fifty cents children, nauseating, was ninety-eight percent blatant junk. There was always that other two percent. Things like the Coombs' long rifle over the hearth in the kitchen, the strange little camera obscura in the parlor, and of course the... The Delver looking-glass was removed from downstairs after a rather unfortunate incident. Mr. Carlin said abruptly, motivated, apparently, by the ghastly, glaring portrait of no one in particular at the base of the next staircase. There had been others, harsh words, wild statements, but this was an attempt to actually destroy the mirror. The woman, a Miss Sandra Bates, came in with a rock in her pocket. Fortunately, her aim was bad, and she only cracked a corner of the case— the mirror was unharmed. The Bates girl had a brother. No need to give me the dollar tour, Spangler said quietly. I'm conversant with the history of the Delver Glass. Fascinating, isn't it? Carlin cast him an odd, oblique look. There was that English duchess in 1709, and the Pennsylvania rug merchant in 1746, not to mention... I'm conversant with the history, Spangler repeated quietly. It's the workmanship I'm interested in. And then, of course, there's the question of authenticity. Authenticity, Mr. Carlin chuckled, a dry sound, as if bones had stirred in a cupboard below the stairs. It's been examined by experts, Mr. Spangler. So was the Lemlier Stradivarius. "'So true,' Mr. Carlin said with a sigh. 
but no Stradivarius ever had quite the the unsettling effect of the Delver glass. Yes, quite, Spangler said in his softly contemptuous voice. He understood now there would be no stopping Carlin. He had a mind which was perfectly in tune with the age. Quite. They climbed the third and fourth flights in silence. As they drew closer to the roof of the rambling structure, it became oppressively hot in the dark upper galleries. With the heat came a creeping stench that Spangler knew well, for he had spent all his adult life working in it. A smell of long dead flies in shadowy corners, of wet rot and creeping wood lice behind the plaster. The smell of age. It was a smell common only to museums and mausoleums. He imagined much the same smell might arise from the grave of a virginal young girl, forty years dead. Up here, the relics were piled helter-skelter in true junk-shop profusion. Mr. Carlin led Spangler through a maze of statuary, frame-splintered portraits, pompous gold-plated bird-cages, the dismembered skeleton of an ancient tandem bicycle. He led him to the far wall, where a stepladder had been set up, beneath a trap-door in the ceiling. A dusty padlock hung from the trap. Off to the left, an imitation Adonis stared at them piteously with blank, pupilless eyes. One arm was outstretched, and a yellow sign hung on the wrist which read, Absolutely no admittance. Mr. Carlin produced a key ring from his jacket pocket, selected a key, and mounted the stepladder. He paused on the third rung, his bald head gleaming faintly in the shadows. I don't like that mirror, he said. I never did. I'm afraid to look into it. I'm afraid I might look into it one day and see what the rest of them saw. They saw nothing but themselves, Spangler said. Mr. Carlin began to speak, stopped, shook his head, and fumbled above him, craning his neck to fit the key properly into the lock. Should be replaced, he muttered. It's... damn! The lock sprung suddenly and swung out of the hasp. Mr. Carlin made a fumbling grab for it and almost fell off the ladder. Spangler caught it deftly and looked up at him. He was clinging shakily to the top of the stepladder, face white in the brown semi-darkness. "'You are nervous about it, aren't you?' Spangler said, in a mildly wondering tone. Mr. Carlin said nothing. He seemed paralyzed. "'Come down,' Spangler said. "'Please.' before you fall. Carlin descended the ladder slowly, clinging to each rung like a man tottering over a bottomless chasm. When his feet touched the floor, he began to babble, as if the floor contained some current that had turned him on, like an electric light. A quarter of a million, he said, a quarter of a million dollars worth of insurance to take that thing from down there to up here, that goddamn thing. They had to rig a special block and tackle to get it into the gable storeroom up there. And I was hoping, almost praying, that someone's fingers would be slippery, that the rope would be the wrong test, that the thing would fall and be shattered into a million pieces. Facts, Spangler said. 
facts, Carlin. Not cheap paperback novels, not cheap tabloid stories or equally cheap horror movies. Facts. Number one. John Delver was an English craftsman of Norman descent who made mirrors in what we call the Elizabethan period of England's history. He lived and died uneventfully. No pentacles scrawled on the floor for the housekeeper to rub out, no sulfur-smelling documents with a splotch of blood on the dotted line. Number two, his mirrors have become collector's items due principally to fine craftsmanship and to the fact that a form of crystal was used that has a mildly magnifying and distorting effect upon the eye of the beholder, a rather distinctive trademark. Number three, only five Delvers remain in existence to our present knowledge. Two of them in America. They are priceless. Number four, this Delver, and one other that was destroyed in the London Blitz, have gained a rather spurious reputation due largely to falsehood, exaggeration, and coincidence that— Fact number five, Mr. Cullen said. You're a supercilious bastard, aren't you? Spangler looked with mild detestation at the blind-eyed Adonis. I was guiding the tour that Sandra Bates's brother was a part of when he got his look into your precious Delver mirror, Spangler. He was perhaps sixteen, part of a high school group. I was going through the history of the glass, and it just got to the part you would appreciate, extolling the flawless craftsmanship, the perfection of the glass itself, when the boy raised his hand. But what about that black splotch in the upper left-hand corner, he asked. That looks like a mistake. And one of his friends asked him what he meant, so the Bates boy started to tell him, then stopped. He looked at the mirror very closely, pushing right up to the red velvet guard rope around the case. Then he looked behind him, as if what he had seen had been the reflection of someone, of someone in black, standing at his shoulder. It looked like a man, he said, but I couldn't see the face. It's gone now. And that was all. Go on. Spangler said. You're itching to tell me it was the Reaper. I believe that is the common explanation, isn't it? That occasional chosen people see the Reaper's image in the glass. Get it out of your system, man. The National Enquirer would love it. Tell me about the horrific consequences and defy me to explain it. Was he later hit by a car? Did he jump out of a window? What? Mr. Carlin chuckled a forlorn little chuckle. You should know better, Spangler. Haven't you told me twice that you are, uh, conversant with the history of the Delver Glass? There were no horrific consequences. There never have been. That's why the Delver Glass isn't Sunday supplementized like the Kohinoor Diamond or the Curse on King Tut's Tomb. It's mundane compared to those. You think I'm a fool, don't you? Yes, Spangler said. Can we go up now? Certainly, Mr. Carlin said passionately. He climbed the ladder and pushed the trap door. There was a clickety-clackety bump as it was drawn up into the shadows by a counterweight, 
and then Mr. Carlin disappeared into the shadows. Spangler followed. The blind Adonis stared unknowingly after them. The gable room was explosively hot, lit only by one cobwebby, many-angled window that filtered the hard outside light into a dirty, milky glow. The looking-glass was propped at an angle to the light, catching most of it and reflecting a pearly patch onto the far wall. It had been bolted securely into a wooden frame. Mr. Carlin was not looking at it. Quite studiously not looking at it. "'You haven't even put a dust-cloth over it,' Spangler said, visibly angered for the first time. "'I think of it as an eye,' Mr. Carlin said. His voice was still drained, perfectly empty. "'If it's left open, always open, perhaps it will go blind.' Spangler paid no attention. He took off his jacket, folded the buttons carefully in, and with infinite gentleness he wiped the dust from the convex surface of the glass itself. Then he stood back and looked at it. It was genuine. There was no doubt about it. Never had been, really. It was a perfect example of Delver's particular genius. The cluttered room behind him, his own reflection, Carlin's half-turned figure, they were all clear, sharp, almost three-dimensional. The faint magnifying effect of the glass gave everything a slightly curved effect that added an almost fourth-dimensional distortion. It was... His thought broke off, and he felt another wave of anger. Carlin. Carlin said nothing. Carlin, you damned fool. I thought you said that girl didn't harm the mirror. No answer. Spangler stared at him icily in the glass. There is a piece of friction tape in the upper left-hand corner. Did she crack it? For God's sake, man, speak up. You're seeing the reaper, Carlin said. His voice was deadly and without passion. There's no friction tape on the mirror. Put your hand over it, dear God. Spangler wrapped the upper sleeve of his coat carefully around his hand, reached out, and pressed it gently against the mirror. You see? Nothing supernatural. It's gone. My hand covers it. Covers it? Can you feel the tape? Why don't you pull it off? Spangler took his hand away carefully and looked into the glass. Everything in it seemed a little more distorted. The room's odd angles seemed to yaw crazily, as if on the verge of sliding off into some unseen eternity. There was no dark spot in the mirror. It was flawless. He felt a sudden unhealthy dread rise in him, and despised himself for feeling it. It looked like him, didn't it? Mr. Carlin asked. His face was very pale, and he was looking directly at the floor. A muscle twitched spasmodically in his neck. Admit it, Spangler. It looked like a hooded figure standing behind you, didn't it? 
It looked like friction tape masking a short crack, Spangler said very firmly. Nothing more, nothing less. The Bates boy was very husky, Carlin said rapidly. His words seemed to drop into the hot, still atmosphere, like stones into dark water. Like a football player. He was wearing a letterman sweater and dark green chinos. We were halfway to the upper half exhibits when... The, the heat is making me ill, Spangler said, a little unsteadily. He had taken out a handkerchief and was wiping his neck. His eyes searched the convex surface of the mirror in small, jerky movements. When he said he wanted a drink of water. A drink of water, for God's sake. Carlin turned and stared wildly at Spangler. How was I to know? How was I to know? Is there a lavatory? I think I'm going to... His sweater. I just caught a glimpse of his sweater going down the stairs. Then... Be sick. Carlin shook his head, as if to clear it, and looked at the floor again. Of course. Third door on your left. Second floor, as you go toward the stairs. He looked up appealingly. How was I to know? But Spangler had already stepped down onto the ladder. It rocked under his weight, and for a moment Carlin thought, hoped, that he would fall. He didn't. Through the open square in the floor, Carlin watched him descend, holding his mouth lightly with one hand. Spangler? But he was gone. Carlin listened to his footfalls fade to echoes, then die away. When they were gone, he shivered violently. He tried to move his own feet to the trapdoor, but they were frozen. Just that last hurried glimpse of the boy's sweater. God! It was as if huge, invisible hands were pulling his head, forcing it up. Not wanting to look, Carlin stared into the glimmering depths of the Delver looking glass. There was nothing there. The room was reflected back to him, faithfully, its dusty confines transmuted into glimmering infinity. A snatch of a half-remembered Tennyson poem occurred to him, and he muttered it aloud. I am half sick of shadows, said the Lady of Shalott. And still he could not look away, and the breathing stillness held him. From around one corner of the mirror a moth-eaten buffalo head peered at him with flat obsidian eyes. The boy had wanted a drink of water, and the fountain was in the first-floor lobby. He had gone downstairs and... and had never come back. Ever. Anywhere. Like the duchess who had paused after primping before her glass for a soiree and decided to go back into the sitting-room for her pearls. Like the rug merchant who had gone for a carriage ride and had left behind him only an empty carriage and two closed-mouthed horses. And the Delver Glass had been in New York from 1897 until 1920, had been there when Judge Crater... Carlin stared as if hypnotized 
into the shallow depths of the mirror. Below, the blind-eyed Adonis kept watch. He waited for Spangler, much like the Bates family must have waited for their son, much like the Duchess's husband must have waited for his wife to return from the sitting-room. He stared into the mirror and waited and waited and waited. It was brought to my attention that The Crate, which was the first lost Stephen King story that I produced in audio, that that episode had been taken down. And it was taken down with no fanfare. I, I never heard anything about it from YouTube. It was just simply gone one day. Rob, one of the listeners, probably the only person listening right now, brought it to my attention and said, you know, I always meant to listen to that story. Uh, now I can't. Now it's gone. And Rob took his life that day. And uh, this episode is dedicated to his memory. No, actually, I, I don't think it was that damaging to him. But still, he said, oh, shoot, it's too bad that that story is gone and there's no way for me to listen to it. But there was a way for him to listen to it. And that was because episode 36 of the Rish Outcast was me doing Crate and talking a little bit about it. And so I uploaded that episode for my Patreon supporters. And uh, it should still be there. And as I was uploading it, I listened to the very beginning and the very end. Uh, in case there was something interesting that I was talking about. It was from January uh, 2016. Or it might not have been January. He said it was the first episode he had done in 2016. But in that episode, I talked about uploading the crate to YouTube. The crate and one for the road, uh, which is still my favorite Stephen King short story. And uh, I said at the very end of the episode, you know, that'll be an experiment and we'll see if it gets taken down or if, you know, somebody comes after me, if I get a nasty email, we'll see what kind of comments people say on that video. And, you know, even if it's, it's terrible what happens, uh, it'll make for an interesting discussion on this program. And that's how I left it in 2016. So here we are, May 2019, I got my first Your Video Has Been Removed email from YouTube. And the video was my reading of The Man Who Would Not Shake Hands. And I don't believe that I did an episode of that. I just did the recording and uploaded it after I had uploaded some of these, you know, more obscure stories. My initial thought was, okay, I can see why they flagged this one, because the man who would not shake hands is actually available in audio. Uh, several years ago, I want to say 1994, there was an audio production done of the King Collection Skeleton Crew, and it had the man who would not shake hands in it, among other stories. And even though the recording was from 1994, that version has been uploaded to Audible really recently. And I thought, well, that's why they flagged this video. It's the only one of King's stories that I've done that is available for purchase. And so 
all right, you know, that's a lesson learned. I never did an episode for the men who would not shake hands because I didn't feel like it merited an episode. I didn't have anything to say about it other than I had liked that story as a kid. And when I got to college and I became a film student, I thought about adapting it for a student film. I never did it, but I would have really, really had to take liberties with it because the story itself wasn't anything like how I remembered it, except for the punchline of the story. And so, you know, maybe I will do an episode about that because that's not available. You can't just, even on my Patreon, I think the video is gone. The video has been taken down. So yeah, uh, remind me if a few months go by and I haven't done an episode for that, maybe I will. But my logic was not sound in thinking that I was safe for the other videos because yesterday I got flagged a second time, a second video, the one I had done of the revelations of Becca Paulson was taken down by YouTube. And the email that they wrote me was, this video has been flagged by Stephen King for a violation of his copyright. And I was just like, wow, really? King knows that I exist? That's kind of, but then I was like, no, it isn't. These are his people or underlings or the publisher. King doesn't have anything to do with it. But if you remember the episode for Revelations of Becca Paulson, that was a short story that ran in Rolling Stone. And then he incorporated it into The Tommyknockers in 1987. So my theory of you know, only things that are available in official audio are going to trip their wires, could maybe still be correct. But we'll never know. Because after I got that letter, it also it said, you have two strikes. And with a third strike, we will take down your YouTube page. And so I removed all of the Stephen King story readings that I had on there. And that doesn't leave very much. I don't know what happened to all the fake Sean Connery songs. I remembered having several of those and I thought I had some Star Wars stuff and all that's there now is Tales from eBay Horror and like three other things, one of them being Dracula's Guest, which is in the public domain so I can do what I want with it. I don't know. Part of me wants to just continue doing Stephen King stories. But also, you know, maybe doing the occasional Robert E. Howard story or something that I can just put on YouTube. Because uh, here's the thing. After I put out my reading of the Reploids on YouTube, I started getting subscriptions to my channel. And I looked at the stats and all of my videos had relatively few or almost no views at all except for the Reploids. And the Reploids had thousands of views. You know, there were a lot of thumbs downs and FUs on there because people didn't like the story and they didn't like the ending of the story and they seemed to think that I had cut it off where I did. But that means they just didn't read the little note that I put at the end of the video where I said I suspected that it was a fragment from an abandoned novel rather than a short story. 
but oh well, they, they don't have to pay attention to me, right? But I started getting all of these subscriptions, which was impressive, which was cool. Big Anklovich has been doing his video series about toys, and he complained that he, he doesn't get a lot of subscribers, but I was getting a couple every single day. But now that all the King stuff is gone, I fear that I will get no more subscribers and that the ones that I have are going to drop off. And that's sad, but what can you do? I mean, I knew from the very beginning that I didn't have legal right to put my name on his stories or, you know, to put them out there even in a an anonymous way. And Rob, the listener, told me that there are still links to my videos out there. I meant to sit down and, and check it out before I got the idea of doing this episode. So I removed all of the objectionable videos. But it, the timing was bad because I had just finished doing a, a reading of a short story called The Blue Air Compressor, which Stephen King published in, I want to say, 1972. And then there was a second version in 1980. And I had done the recording of Blue Air Compressor. I sat down and I'd done the editing of Blue Air Compressor. Then I sat down and did a video for Blue Air Compressor. And, and honestly, the videos don't take that long. Tales of eBay horror take a long time because there are cuts and I, I stick in little pictures and stuff. But on, on the Stephen King ones, I would just find some images that I felt were relevant. In this case, I took the two publications that had run Blue Air Compressor. One was like the the University of Maine's like in-house, liter it was the literary magazine. And the other one was heavy metal magazine. I laid those down over the audio and then a little explanation at the end. And I had finished that and I was about to upload it. Seriously, the day before I got this, your video has been removed due to copyright problems. And so I didn't upload it. That video still sits unwatched and I guess will remain unwatched. I mean, unless there is a way to upload videos directly to my blog or to uh, this Patreon channel, page, whatever you call it. I'll keep that in mind. And if people really, really demanded it, because you demanded it, I guess I could put Blue Air Compressor out as its own episode, because all the work has already been done. The, the, the difference between it and Crate and Reploids and One for the Road and Men That Will Not Shake Hands and Reaper's Image is I did not like Blue Air Compressor. I didn't like it at all. But it was kind of interesting because he, he jumped all over the place in the narrative with the basic story being told and then the main character is a writer and we see some of his writing and then at two points of the story Stephen King himself interrupts the story by saying hey this is Stephen King I'm the writer and I wanted you to know and I did that voice pretty much when it was King so that was interesting 
as far as an audio presentation goes. I had to decide how I was going to voice the thoughts of the main character and then voice his writing and then voice Stephen King interrupting the story. But I didn't like the story, and I rarely dislike King's work from the 1970s. Uh, that was as good as it got for that guy. Anyhow, in addition to not uploading the video for Blue Air Compressor, I had this recording of the Reaper's image that I had done the day before I finished editing. No, you know what? The video program that I use has a real, real hard time rendering the video. If it works, it takes a really, really long time. And if it doesn't work, it takes forever. Eventually I'll realize, oh, hey, it's no longer rendering even though it says, you know, 63% finished or 12% finished or whatever, I'll have to kill the program, restart the program, and then reload the elements, which takes a while. And every time that I have that problem with one of my videos, like a Tales of V-Bay Horror, I'm always worried that something has changed, that the audio sync no longer works, because I've, I've found that where it's just like, okay, I reload the program, and now a couple of things are no longer in sync, and one of these little pictures is gone. What the crap? I, I hate, hate that. And I guess if I'm really serious about being a video editor, which I'm not, I need to buy a program that's better and less prone to crashing. But blah, 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 you've heard me a hundred times explain why I don't like to do videos. I like to do audio. I am in my element in audio. I guess I'm like a silent film star that once... Wait, no, I'm like a radio star that was killed by video. Pictures came and broke my heart. Put all the blame on VCR. You are a radio star. You are a radio star. Okay. No, no, they get the point. Yes, the Buggles. A great song, but please. I'm trying to talk about something else. It was a tangent. Oh. Anyway, just, just ignore it. It'll go away. It's like, a, it's like a bully or class clown or herpes. So I'm not totally serious about doing video. But I am serious about doing audio. And even though it's only been a week or so, I thrilled when I sat down and recorded The Reaper's Image. The Reaper's Image was first published in 1969 in a magazine called Startling Mystery Stories. And it was Stephen King's second professional sale. Even as a boy, as a, as a teenager, he would send out his work to various publications and try and get it sold. And instead of being disheartened, ground down by rejections, he made a game of it. How many rejections can I earn? How many rejections can I get? You know, he had a pin where he stuck the rejections all together on the wall. And eventually, 
the rejections got so thick and heavy that it pulled the pin out of the wall. And so he got a great big nail and stuck it in the wall to hold all of these rejections that just piled up and piled up. And he took them as a badge of honor every time he got one of these rejections. And I wish that I had a modicum of that kind of self-confidence. I, I promise you, I would not be sitting alone in a basement right now, surrounded by boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes and toys that I'm never going to sell, that when they find my dead body, somebody's going to have to decide what to do with all this crap. And I pity them. I pity me. But yeah, that idea that he would continue to send stuff out and continue to write and be undaunted is inspiring. Anyway, this was his second professional sale, and it didn't get published until, I want to say September of 1969, and by then Stephen King was 22. And I think he had published other stuff by the time this came out. But it had sold, and then, yeah, didn't see print for a long, long time. And so it, it still had to feel really good when this came out. And I make no bones about it, I love this story. And I loved narrating it. It appeared in Skeleton Crew, which was his 1985 collection, and that's the same one that had the man who would not shake hands in it. And it also has the jaunt in it, which is one of my favorite, favorite Stephen King stories. And I've mentioned the jaunt a bunch of times because it's science fiction. And I don't know the difference between... You'll hear the term hard science fiction when it's describing a story, uh, you know, where there's a basis in science fact. There is research being done. There is a believability... There's not going to be aliens. There's not going to be faster-than-light traveling hard science fiction. The Jaunt is not hard science fiction, but it's harder sci-fi than I think he's ever been known for. But then you reach the end, and you remember, oh yeah, this is Stephen King. The Jaunt is friggin' great. As much as I love the Reaper's image, and I love it, like I said, I was honored, even if I can't share it with anybody. I was honored to be able to read this story. And it's not the first time that I've read it. I read it to my niece, I think, when she was like eight. And she's like, oh, read me a story. And I, I read several Stephen King stories to her. But The Jaunt, ah, that's way up there in my absolute favorite King stories. Okay, remember a few minutes ago I was talking about putting my stuff up on YouTube, and suddenly it was getting views, and people started putting comments, and some of the comments were mean, because it's YouTube, but some of the comments were very, very complimentary, and I really like your voice, or I like the way that you did this, I can't wait to hear more, and, and people started making requests. Somebody who was very nice emailed me and said, would you please do the revelations of Becca Paulson? And that is why I did that story, even though I didn't know the story. And I ultimately didn't really like that story. But I did it for that guy. And somebody said, would you consider doing 
word processor of the gods or the jaunt. And I told him, absolutely, I love those two stories. But I think word processor of the gods is out there. You can buy that. So I, I don't know that I would do that one. But if it doesn't exist, I, yeah, absolutely, I'll do that. Um, and so one day, and it was very, very close to the time that I had to stop doing these. But one day I sat down and I went through his first two collections, Skeleton Crew and Night Shift, and looked up every single one of the stories to see if there was official audio or not. And there was official audio of the jaunt, and it was narrated by Frank Muller, and it was in 1988 back on books on tape. And what they did was that they would put out a cassette with a Stephen King short story on each side. And so there were two on that one, and I don't remember what the other story was. Uh, it might have been Mrs. Todd's Shortcut or something like that. But it hasn't been in print since 1988, and it's only available in cassette. And you can find the cassettes, but they're very expensive. And I thought, well, that's interesting. But I still feel like it's more likely somebody somewhere has digitized the jaunt, read by Frank Muller, who was the audiobook narrator. I think Big Anklevich would agree with me. The best audiobook narrator there's ever been. Big likes to tell this story about having to read Great Expectations. That's G-R-A-T-E Expectations, also by Edmund Wells, in high school and absolutely hating it. And then as a grown man, finding the audiobook read by Frank Muller, and it, it came to life, and he loved the book. In other words, as much as I'd love to do the jaunt, it's already been done better than I could do it. But, you know, it's still in the back of my head. Okay, so... Because I had done the recording and I so liked it, and because I couldn't put them on YouTube anymore and they're gone, and Rob said he really wanted to hear my reading of The Crate, and because I uploaded my reading of The Crate again and heard myself talking about, well, it would be an interesting story to tell you how things go on YouTube, I'm doing this right now and you have heard the Reaper's image. My uncle, who believes in the paranormal, I mean, he is a real believer in the paranormal, lives in Las Vegas. And last time I went and saw him, which was just two months ago, he was telling me that they had opened a paranormal museum in Las Vegas. He was talking about it like, of course you've heard about this. Of course everyone has heard about this, because it's more famous than the Shroud of Turin. But I had never heard of it, and my guess is unless you live in Las Vegas or are a big fanatic for the paranormal, you hadn't heard about this. But he was telling me about, you can go on these tours, and there are tour guides, and they'll tell you about the various artifacts that are there. And among them are famous like objects that belonged to psychics or clairvoyants or people that were involved with ghosts or haunted objects, or like the Annabelle doll, which they've made all those movies about, 
resides in this museum. And he told me this story of they make you sign this waiver that if something happens and you freaked out, or worse, if something happens and you become possessed or influenced by something from the great beyond, you are not allowed to sue them. You cannot. Uh, you have to promise. And he told me this is just like, oh my gosh, it's so haunted that they make you sign a waiver. And I, I think you're a little more level-headed than that. You're thinking the same thing I'm thinking. No, that's just something. That's just showmanship. Making you sign a waiver in case you get possessed. You can't sue us. You know, it reminds me of one of those William Castle things. I remember one of his movies, and I don't remember which one it was, House on Haunted Hill or something like that. It was so scary that William Castle would offer $100,000 to anybody who saw the movie and died of fright during the movie. As, you know, an apology for making a movie this terrifying. Anyway, I'm just saying it's the same thing. Saying, well, you have to sign a waiver. You have to swear. And my uncle's son had a real problem with this, he said. He said he didn't want to swear. That that uh, it would offend the spirits or something. I, I, I'm trying to remember what it was exactly. But he's just one of those religious types that says, you know... I shouldn't even be here messing with the paranormal, you know, I'm opening the door to something dark and, and uh, you know, like a sinister presence. And that's no fun. <laughs> so when I was reading Reaper's Image, I couldn't help but think of this haunted museum, this museum of the paranormal in Las Vegas. And I did drive past it the next day because... He had talked it up so much. My uncle talked about like the feeling that you got. And there, and there was a room that they went in and it was cold. It was cold. It was like, like you had stepped into a freezer. And I know what you're saying because I thought it too. But he fully believed that the reason the room was cold was because you were in the presence of something. Something that ain't right. And I, yeah, I thought about that with this story, with the idea of the mirror that people sometimes see the Grim Reaper in and woe unto you if you see it too. The story being presented in a super dubious way by a non-believer only makes it scarier at the end. It's masterfully done. And if you don't feel like the story was masterfully done, then that's on me as a narrator. I didn't do the story justice. I'm just... Now that I can't do Stephen King stories, I keep thinking about maybe doing some of my own stories on YouTube. But what stories do I do? What do I put out there? Because nobody's going to get after me for doing one of my own stories for copyright infringement. But I don't have any stories that work as well as the Reaper's image. You know, I'm double the age that Stephen King was. And 
I'm not there yet. Um, but, but, you know, to make me feel a little better, I don't know that Stephen King is there anymore. Like his last two short story collections, I read the first one and thought, well, you know, there's, there's not many stories in here that are good. And then the second short story collection, the one that came out after that, I didn't even make it through. But, you know, that's just my opinion. There are probably people out there that say he's only gotten better with age. I, I know my friend Austin, who was a big Stephen King fan, says he much prefers reading the big 700, 800 page King works of today than the really economical short works from his youth. So, you know, it's just opinion. Everybody's got one. I don't claim to be speaking the gospel truth here. It's just the way I feel. And no big deal if you don't feel that same way. I said in 2016 that I don't own those stories. And so I don't have a leg to stand on if I get in trouble for putting them on YouTube. And three years have passed. And, and yeah, the 2016 me was right. I don't have a leg to stand on. It's childish of me that I'm putting this episode out there. You know, it's like me saying, well, oh, you won't invite me to your party? Well, I'm going to throw my own party, and I'm not going to invite you. I mean, it's probably more pathetic than that, because there's nothing pathetic about throwing your own party. I'm not going to charge you for this episode, but I wanted you to be able to hear that reading of Reaper's Image. And I wanted to be able to talk about it. I wanted to be able to talk about how I feel about this. And maybe I haven't said enough. Well, you, know, you feel free to tell me your thoughts on it and whether you enjoy these readings and whether you think I should continue to do them. Because if it's just you I'm sharing them with, that's okay. I don't care that 5,000 people aren't going to hear Reaper's image, except for it would have been nice, I guess. Because there's a connection made between you and the listener when you're a storyteller. Even if it's not your story, when you are saying the words and bringing an audience down a path, a narrative path, you feel good. You feel a connection. I don't know. It's pretty cool. It's, 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 it's basic. It goes back thousands of years, and, and I dig it. So I didn't want that to stop. You know, at the same time, I've met a couple of people who really liked The Calling. That short story that I wrote. Was it a short story? That was something that I wrote, something that came from me. And so if you think... If you think that I need to focus more on that sort of thing, on writing my own short stories, more of them, and presenting them here, and trying to get my own fans, that's a valid suggestion, too. I, I, I'm curious what people think and what people feel. If you have read a story of mine that you would like me to run on this show let me know. And chances are I will do it. 
There are stories that I have in text that I've never done in audio. And all it would take is somebody saying, I like this story. Why don't you do an episode about this? That's something I can charge for, which again, it's not always about money, but it's nice, isn't it? It's nice to have money. That's something I can charge for and maybe make new fans from. And again, YouTube. This has all been about YouTube in one way or another. Look at my back catalog of Rish Outcast episodes and let me know if, if there is a story that you think would work well uploaded to YouTube. You know, just taking the audio and maybe asking Gino to do a cover for it, or maybe I already have a cover, or maybe just have shades of gray going on the screen while I run the story. If you think that maybe it will make me new fans, because YouTube is where it's at. That's why I put the crate up in the first place, was because I knew a lot more people would hear it if it was there than just run on any podcast. So we've reached the end of this episode, and I feel like I've gone a long, long time, but I will, right? The only people hearing this are people that know me, that like something that I do. I wish there were a lot more of you, but dang, it's cool just to have you here. And so thank you for, for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed my presentation of the Reaper's image. And what? Oh, shoot. What is that on the glass there? Is it just a shadow? I think it's just a shadow, kids. Um, good night. <clears throat>
John Kennedy's birthday. You got to go every Sunday. And it's not enough to go every Sunday. But there's like Wednesday Mass and there's Midnight Mass in December. She was devout. And I had an internship in Los Angeles and I ran into a celebrity that I had been a big fan of as a kid. And he was so wasted either from drink or from drugs that he didn't know who he was and he didn't know where he was and it really upset me. I wrote a story about it. I've shared it with Big Anklevich. I've never shared it with anybody else. Why would I? But I told my friend about my encounter and he was bummed out about it and he told Ivy, uh, he told his wife and later he mentioned to me that when Ivy went to Mass, she lit a candle for this, for this actor. And I was kind of honored by that because I felt like I believed maybe there was weight to stuff like that in those days. And, you know, I certainly wasn't in God's good graces, but Ivy probably was because, like I said, Wednesday Mass. And... She lit this candle for him, and a part of it felt like, you know, hey, I, if any good comes of this, part of it is because of me. Anyway, to make a long story short, in 1999, Stephen King got hit by a van while he was out for a walk, and it was a very bad injury. And I was talking to my friend about it, and his wife was there, and I said, hey, Next time you go to Mass, would you please light a candle for Stephen King like, like, like you did last year for... And she said, I'm not going to pray for Stephen King. Come on! I just remembered that response from her. And I just remembered that response. Well, I remembered it during this episode, and now you're hearing it at the end. I'll leave you with that. Now go your way and sin no more. In nome del Patri, et fili. All right.